Um, I'm very nervous. Are you normally nervous? It depends. It depends who uh, who. It depends who I'm talking to. Well, don't I mean we don't know each other that well, but but I'm very comfortable, and I think I'm happy we're doing this. So oh my God, me too. Let's just like enjoy and hang out. Even you know that I was like, of course I can have you know because I don't always people get weird because you know it's a small old school apartment, and I just hate when suddenly I'll see I'll, if I have you know I did an interview with um, well anyway I just always have to ride people about how they talk about my home, you know what I mean? Like because sometimes people will like they live in a you know, whatever, ghetto, you know, and so, but to the extent that I know you and I'm comfortable with you, I was like, of course, Rachel can be in my home. So I had no those class fears with you, you know. Yeah, I have so much to say about that already. Okay. These whole conversations and this whole podcast is such a bizarre and wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I don't feel this way every time, but I definitely like, I feel really fucked up by the preparation for it by having listened to hours and hours of like interviews with you and reading and rereading your books right. and like it's like it's like it just all kind of like poured into me and then I shattered and then like Eileen Miles is like running all over the counter of uh -huh. my consciousness really with funny. like little shards of glass uh -huh. and like and I'm just like, wait, what do I, what do I talk? Like, I want to talk to you about, um, I, d I want to talk about for now. Mm -hmm. I, w I, I have so many thoughts and feelings about it. I want to talk to you about how weird it is that like, I've been tr wanting to record with you for so long, but now in this moment, I'm so, I feel so different than I did when I wanted to record with you before. How perfect. Yeah. Right. I want to talk to you about. I, I, I don't know if you, I mean, I don't know why you would know any of this, but so I grew up in Patchen Place oh. and um, my mom lived there for most of her adult life and she was evicted and it was a deeply traumatic experience for her. And she was, she was evicted um, and she was out for two years and then she won and got back in mm -hmm. and the trial, you know, all, all this stuff, which came up for me so much thinking mm -hmm. about telling people like, yeah, I grew up in the West Village. Nobody understands what that means. Right. You know, it's not like it is now. Right. Yeah, I want to talk to you about all these things. And I'm and I'm just trying to be like, okay, just be here now. Mm. Be here in this moment. Yes. So maybe we could start uh -huh. with like where are you, who are you today in this moment? To the extent that you even know. Yeah. And why did you agree to do this? Oh, oh. Hello and welcome to episode 107 of Commonplace with the one and only Eileen Miles. Or maybe I should say one of the many Eileen Mileses who is one of the one and only Eileen Miles. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. If you have no idea who or what I'm talking about, here's a bio, slightly excerpted from their website. Eileen Miles, born in 1949, is a poet, novelist, and art journalist whose practice of vernacular first-person writing has become a touchstone for the identity-fluid internet age. Pathetic literature 
which they edited, came out in November 2022. Their fiction includes Chelsea Girls, Cool For You, Inferno, and Afterglow. Their writing on art was gathered in the volume The Importance of Being Iceland, Travel Essays in Art. Their books of poetry include Evolution and I Must Be Living Twice, New and Selected Poems, 1975 to 2014. And this spring, any day now, their newest volume of poetry, Working Life, will be released upon the world. They take pictures, which they've shown in New York at Bridget Donahue and in Provincetown at Schoolhouse Gallery. Their Super 8 road film, The Trip, is easily seen on YouTube. Eileen graduated from UMass Boston in 1971. Their poetic education mainly took place at the St. Mark's Poetry Project from 1975 to 1977, attending almost every single reading for 10 years, and participating in workshops led by Alice Notley, Ted Berrigan, Bill Zavetsky, and Paul Violi. Eileen was the artistic director of St. Mark's Poetry Project from 1984 to 1986. In the 1980s and 90s, they worked on a number of collaborative and individual feminist and extremely queer theater projects. But probably most significantly, they've read their poems, spoken and presented their work in festivals, at colleges and galleries, museums and bookstores and cafes and parks all over North America, South America, Europe, Iceland, Australia, New Zealand, since the early 1980s. They toured nationally in a van with Sister Split in 1997 and 2027. Most of their books are on Audible, read by them, and it's their favorite way of being received next to live. Eileen has received many awards, including a Guggenheim, a Warhol Creative Capital Arts Writers Grant, three Lambda Book Awards, a Pioneer Award, the Shelley Prize, a Creative Capital Grant, the Clark Prize, but as we'll talk about, they haven't yet received all the awards. They live in New York City and Marfa, Texas, with a pit bull named Honey. This conversation, listener, I don't even know where to start, how to explain. It's entirely in the present and pulls the past and the future into itself. I recorded in person with Eileen and Honey at Eileen's old school, tiny, but epic New York City apartment on October 24th, 2022. We talk about Eileen's writing, of course, especially their book, For Now, which is one of my favorite books I've ever read. We talk about living in New York, rent control, rent stabilization, sobriety, aging, presentness, sex, gender, hormones, the death of my mother, the death of Eileen's father. We talk about Eileen's front door and about being a famous outsider. We talk about Alice Notley and Bernadette Mayer, may her memory and her work be a blessing, who left this realm on November 22nd, 2022, less than a month after this conversation. What else do I need to tell you before we return to the present of October 24th? Oh, toward the end of our conversation, we talk about the Paris Thanksgiving Manifesto, but we never explain what we're referring to. So the Paris Thanksgiving Manifesto was created by Eileen and Jill Salloway and loosely states that 
male-created pornography will end for 100 years, while female-created pornography begins. Also, war and all art-making made by men will cease for 100 years, all to the betterment of all people, insofar as this might create space for a female reality that everyone can live in. So now you know what the Paris Thanksgiving Manifesto is. Also, for this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive Pathetic Literature, edited by Eileen Miles, courtesy of Grove Atlantic. Inferno by Eileen Miles, courtesy of Orr Books. Snowflake and Sorry Tree, both by Eileen, both courtesy of Wave Books. Constance Debray's Love Me Tender, courtesy of Semiotics. And Bernadette Mayer's Milkweed Smithereens, courtesy of New Directions. All patrons will receive access to an MP3 of Miles reading from My Filmmaker, their long novel in progress, and a list of films that Eileen loves and that were in their headspace while writing Chelsea Girls and their current novel project. To become a Commonplace Book Club member or a patron at any level, or to make a one-time donation to Commonplace, please visit commonpodcast.com or patreon.com slash commonplacepodcast. On our website, you can also sign up for our per-episode newsletter, which we are expanding to include more content-rich delights. In this episode's newsletter, I will include a short excerpt from my book, The Poetics of Wrongness, and a reminder that from now until February 7th, you can pre-order copies of my book directly from Wave Books for 30% off the cover price. So please sign up for the Commonplace newsletter for news about upcoming Commonplace episodes and to be among the first to hear about the school. You heard it right, you heard it here, the school that I'm starting. We might be calling it the Commonplace Center of Embodied Poetics. That's the working title, and I'll be speaking more about it in upcoming episodes and in the newsletter. But let's go back to the present, back to Eileen, a poet, a person, a force of nature and creativity, who not only blurs the line between speech and writing, talk and poetry, but collapses the facades, the false facades of genre and medium and space and time itself. The preparation for and aftermath of this conversation messed me up in the best and hardest and deepest ways because it changed me. I wish the same for you, listener. Wherever you are, whoever you are today, to the best of your own knowledge, and for whatever reason, you happen to be tuning in. Oh, oh. Well, I think similarly, I think... I remembered when you first approached me about it, and then it never happened. And I was mm-hmm. like, huh, does Rachel not like me? Like, why did that <laughs> never happen? Uh-huh. So it's just like it was very nice for it to come back around. And I think things, I do believe things happen at the right time. Like the best thing I heard lately, which is so incredible, I was, um, you know, I was just in France, and Chelsea Girls came out in France. France. Cool. And so that was great. And I had an amazing reception and I just won a book award. It's crazy. It's like having a, 
it's it's the thing the reception I wanted it to have in the '90s when it first came out. It happened just now in Paris. You wow. Know? And weirdly, it was supposed to, it was going to be my first foreign rights, and and France is hard to get, so they bought it in the '90s, and the translator, well, they were translating it, died. So and then it just never happened until for thirty years. You know. So I've been having this. So Frenchie, I came back to New York, and anyway, I'm I'm telling the long version, but I wound up when I first got back to New York from Paris. I went to the 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 Villa Albertine and read with Constance Debray, who is a French author who I had blurbed her book and she was here. And so they wanted us to talk about the, our mutual receptions and so on. And Constance and I became friends. We hung out a bit and um and she was she told me this really funny story about she loves New York and ca- talking to a cab driver and he was from Senegal, and she was like, parlez-vous français? And he was like, oui. And they had a whole conversation uh-huh. with friends. And she said, well, why did you move to New York instead of Paris? And he said, because there is a God. Oh, isn't that the best answer? I mean, it's kind yeah. of Buddhist. Yeah. It's like you can decide what it means. But I think it means destiny. It's just like this is where I am. This is the right time. This is So I think I feel like... I'm talking with you now because there is a God. That's what I feel. I, I agree. You know? So I think that's I think that's great. And I am in a good place. I mean, I've been suffering with this ankle, and I feel like it's turning the corner. And I don't know. I'm really going to kind of a – I mean, I'm in an over – I have two books coming out of this. I mean, like, Pathetic is coming out, and then I have a poetry book coming out in the spring. And it's just too much. And I think – I feel like Grove is, like, up my ass. I was like, <laughs> why are we rushing? I don't get it, you know? And um, and it really is, and it's just like, and then there's always already my life, which is things like the book coming out in France, and you know, so it's just like it's just like I have too much work at this moment. It's overwhelming, and what I really miss is writing time. Like it feels mm-hmm. like that's the thing that always the thing that's strange about having a career is it takes away your practice yeah. unless you really guard it passionately, which I'm, I'm getting better at, but I it, like I have to. I have to learn it again and again to say no to things. And like lately, I know the ankle's been really good because I've just been like thinking, no, I really need to stop running around the city doing things and meeting people. Staying in for three or, three or four hours today or tonight is the greatest thing I can do for myself. And in that time, I get to do some work. And it, even like I'm returning, I have a novel that is the thing I really want to be working on. And I'm starting to have a little pecking relationship with that, which feels really great. Well, so one question is, I mean, I'm very confused for myself about whether these conversations and commonplace is part of my practice or part of my career Mm -hmm. or neither. Right. right. And I'm also confused about so many other parts of my life. Mm -hmm. Like reading is definitely both. Mm -hmm. Um, Talking to other writers, definitely both. Right. Talking to friends, living my life is both. Yeah. But, okay, so let's first... I, I, I want to hear, I want you to talk about um, the pathetic anthology sure. and a working life so that I know what, you know, what's coming out. But then I'm also curious, like, is that why you said yes? Because you've got lots of stuff coming out and this is sort of like part of no, it just the seemed... work of being a writer. Yes, the la- yeah, that, the latter, just that this is part of the work of being a writer. But I mean, I don't mean in relationship necessarily, I, I mean, it's happy to make acknowledgments of pathetic getting out there because I don't know what kind of 
reception in the world it will yeah. get or is getting, you know. But also, just it just it seemed like inevitable this mm -hmm. conversation, mm -hmm. and so I was happy and excited about that. Um, okay, talk about the anthology because I I find it totally fascinating, and I think you know the introduction was amazing, and I, the 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 uh, I feel like it it must overlap very deeply with the novel, but maybe I'm wrong. I mean, no. only only in that that so much of what's in there are my influences. Right. Though shockingly, there's certain, like Henry Miller is a huge influence, not in there, didn't even, I mean, there's, there's some really, really obvious people who should be in there, and for, and I don't know why they're not in there. It's really funny, because the book is so big, and there were people, it was even people who were on the list, and for some reason they didn't get in, you know, and it's just like, so Pathetic was very much, um, it was, again, it was something, it was something inevitable, like I... You know, I think that the introduction explains some of this, but I, you know, the word applied to masculinity in the art world in the 90s was interesting and troubling. And it, because it seemed to be so much about feminism as told by men. Mm -hmm. And then it gets like, yay, how, what an act of genius for men to be personal and talk about <laughs> feelings and be thwarted and misshapen. And, you know, and, and I did immediately translate it into literature and taught this seminar at UCSD. And it was really fun because all these people, I mean, it was kind of like, all these people did belong together in my mind because the, these were the people that I read or how I read, mm -hmm. you know. So in so many ways, it's like really an anthology of how I read, you know, and what what is exciting for me. And so there was just – and so I think I – in my Afterglow, my dog book, there was, there was something about pathetic in there. And then my editor at the time, Zach Pace, was like, well, we have to do this book. And, and when I when – I, I mean, he the first book I did at Grove was Afterglow, and then, no, 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 was, was it? Yeah, it was. But and and, you know, it's like I have this funny career because it's just like I just see people, you know, twenty, thirty years younger than me getting these big ass advances, and I never, I get teeny weeny, mm -hmm. like we're in two figures and we're like low two figures, you know, and so, but so t my agent to get money from me decided it should be a four book deal. Hmm. So it was like a poetry book, Afterglow, Pathetic, and something called the Eileen Miles Reader, and so 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 it was just in the, it was just in the what do you call it in the, on, whatever, the, the, what, on the grocery line conveyor belt. Yeah, kind. Yeah, yeah, uh -huh. some, yeah. So so that was that. But then but then come um, the pandemic, it just was a great time to, I thought. Let's do it. And I think we, you know, I think that was kind of the agreement in general. And so that's just like, it was just, it was, it was so much easier because I was, before the pandemic, I was working like gangbusters on this novel in Marfa. And then the pandemic came and it was just like, I just lost the shape of my brain. And mm -hmm. what, what I could really do was write poems, which is a working life. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then every day pick something from Kafka, pick something from Simone Weil. Like Simone Weil, weirdly, was the first thing I picked for the book. And it was her weird essay on um, baptism. Like explaining why, as a Jew being converted to Catholicism, she still refused baptism. And she want, cause she wanted to be with the outsiders. Huh. She wasn't sure she deserved it, but she also thought of all the people in the world who were not baptized. And she felt she belonged with them, which I think is like, but so pathetic. Yeah. You know? And reminds me of you, sort of, in the sense that I feel like you're the most 
famous outsider, <laughs> right. which is like a, you know, I mean, what, what does it even mean to be a famous poet? You're kind of it. Right. But also, I still think you're very much an outsider and always will be. I think, yeah. But yeah. how do you be a both famous and an outsider is right. fascinating. I know it's a funny people. W people would love this position, uh -huh. but I simply am in it. Right? Yeah, it's funny because okay. I'm always reminded of what I mean. I just I'm continually, you know, in frustrating ways. But then, and then it becomes glorious, of course. You know, when I write, you know, most recently I wrote a long piece for the New Yorker that they commissioned, and then they killed it because <laughs> I'm too just too weird. It was too weird uh -huh. for them, you know. They think they want weird, but then they don't know whether they can handle it. Um, okay, so, but, like, what about, when did, did you read Tristram Shandy for pathetic literature, or? No, did, I was. Did, it or did, like, the idea for the anthology come out of noticing? I was kind of obsessed with Christ Tristram Shandy for, a, I mean, like, I knew about it in college, and it was a cool thing to read at that time, which right. was. 1967 to 1971 it was that was literature was very you know into it but um i looked at it and i was like i can't read that mm -hmm. and um and so i think it was on my bookshelf for years and then um anyway just you know it's just like i i've been i think in this, this it's the novel in this novel time could have started in 2013 you know because i was going through a breakup and um and what I felt about that breakup was that I wasn't just breaking up with her, I was breaking up with everybody. Mm. And so I was having these kind of flashbacks of many lovers. And so I thought, oh, what if I write a piece, a book about the, the domesticities I've shared with different women and the lingering, you know, I just feel like I live with all the habits of all the, I mean, they've kind of brought me up in a way. Because my mother was very, like, she was not a maternal mother. She was, you know, she delivered certain really obvious things, and you know, she was there and made meals and was managing and controlling. But she was not an intimate woman. She would have these breakouts where suddenly she would start telling us stuff, and we were all like, our tongues were hanging out, you know, for this kind of. But she wasn't close, mm -hmm. and so, um, so I think I've I've gotten so many ways of living from girlfriends, and so that was the idea began at that point, and then it just kind of kept growing and so at some point I started to think that I should read big books especially once I decided decided that it would be a big book I want to write a thousand page novel and then it's coincidentally I so I read it and then I think Michael Miller asked me to write a piece for book forum about mm. I don't know what the I can't remember what the it was something about hell <laughs> and I felt like reading Tristan Shandy is hell. Uh -huh. And so I wrote a piece for book form about it, which I think I'm going to put in some fashion to stick it. I'm kind of to stick it in the novel. So why do you want to write a thousand page novel? Well, I was writing this novel and then I think I went with um, I went to a reading at Zinc Bar that was C.A. Conrad and Jack Halberstam were reading. And Jack did a Jack who is in pathetic literature read a piece about Nausgaard mm -hmm. and it was like a dyke send-up of Nausgaard and it was very funny and um and I had never I've just refused to read Nausgaard because part of me thinks it's it's got to be somewhat like what I do and then just the fact that he's such a genius and was so kind of watching him be consumed all over the world for you know so I've just refused so I just and Jack was very funny it was like you don't have to read Nausgaard because I have read every bit of it I've read <laughs> it for you and uh -huh. so I just at that moment I thought I'm gonna 
it's like enough of this these massive books of male genius. Yeah. I'm going to write one. And so that's what, you know, so that's when I decided to scale it up. But again, I mean, I'd be happy if I wound up 658, 758, 785. Other numbers would be good too. But but there's a lot of I mean, part of I mean, I wrote a novel in the 90s about a relationship called My Filmmaker. Mm. And it was a horrible breakup and it was the repercussions were very public and it was just like I really went through it with people and and then when I and so I at one point I thought we were going to go to court and so I wrote this novel really quickly and then um, when I started to read bits and pieces of it publicly I got such a b bizarre reaction that I, j I did something I've never done I put it aside wow for basically 30 years so there's you know there's an example of 250 pages that I can just to some extent just file into the book so I'm really, I love folding things, pre-existing things, folding them. Like there'll be parts of for now that we'll get in this novel. And I made, I made that be in the contract that I could do that. Uh-huh. One of the things, so, so I have this, I, I got asked to do the Bagley Wright lectures. And that was a super interesting experience for me because uh, my, my work and my thinking and my teaching and my whole life is sort of like very anti lecture uh -huh. like anti like i'm gonna stand up here and tell you what i think right or I, i'm gonna stand up here and tell you what you should think right i'm gonna tell stand up here and tell you what i know uh -huh. like that's like antithetical to what i what i'm interested in in poetry and interested in relationships which is mm -hmm. about conversation and yeah. anti-hierarchical and you know all this stuff so um so I, 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 I got asked to write these lectures um, before my mom died. Um, and when did she die? So she died January 31st. I'm, I'm laughing because you mentioned 2013. She died January 31st of 2013. And you said um, it wasn't just that I was breaking up with one woman. It was sort of like I was breaking up with everyone. Mm -hmm. And so the, the very short version of this is that I had been writing – a memoir called Mothers about my mother, but also about like my female mentors, Jory Graham, Alice mm -hmm. Notley, Sharon Olds, Bernadette Mayer, and 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 thinking about like why I was always looking for a mother mm -hmm. when I had a living mother. Right, right. In any case, um, I thought the book would never get published. It was too weird. Like I sent it to Grey Wolf and I sent it to Wave and like everybody was just like Wave was like, we don't publish prose. I'm like, you sure do. Right. <laughs> That's really funny. You know, and Grey Wolf was like, nobody will ever be interested in a book of prose about poets. I'm like, uh, have you read Maggie Nelson? Like, uh -huh. what are you doing? Right. Anyway, and if, they, they just didn't like it. So and then Julie Carr at Counterpath I asked her, where should I send the book? And she's yeah. like, send it to me. And I sent it to her. And she was like, well, we'll publish it. And I was like, no, 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 You do really weird stuff. Mine is not weird. And she was like, no, we'll publish it. I was like, no, 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 Because um, why? You didn't want her to publish it? I just, it? I thought, she, I don't, I think it was like some kind of weird, like, oh, you don't have to be nice. Oh. Like, but did you not think she was big enough? I, I, it just doesn't seem like it goes with any of the stuff, the other stuff that Counterpath publishes. That's always a good place to be. Which is where, if it's like you're the weirdo with, like, I felt like I wasn't weird enough, though. That's how you get attention, though, is to be the, the wrong person. Interesting. Okay. Anyway, when they said yes, I was like, okay, I showed it to my mother, and um, 
this the, I've written about this. I, I've talked about the podcast, so but I'll just just to be brief. Like my mother was like, her first response was, um, "Great, great, th- thank you for you know letting me read this," and you know, and then very quickly it was like, "You cannot publish this, absolutely not." And we had these weekly meetings. And what did she die of? Well, yeah, I'm coming to that. So then she left for Taiwan uh, because she had been going back and forth um, from New York to Taiwan. Uh, She was learning Chinese and and translating Monkey King. And uh, and so we had this big it had been this massive fight, but it got worse and worse. And she said, if you publish this book, terrible things are going to happen to me, to you and to your kids. And then she left for Taiwan. And so she went to Taiwan. I, meanwhile, um, this was before I had this podcast. And I went to interview Sharon Olds for something else. This was before she'd won some big prize. I, I went to interview her about Stag's Leap. And I stayed overnight in her home in New Hampshire. And I asked her primarily, should I publish this book against my mother's wishes? Uh And Sharon did not answer the question she Uh was like i see a heron i was like okay how does that answer my question anyway and then i came home from new hampshire and it was like january 29th 28th 29th i guess and i emailed my mom and i said i am going to publish the book you know i i'm happy to make changes i really if i if I don't publish this book, I'm done writing forever. Like, if I can't say these things, mm-hmm. I can't say anything. She, what was it that she so objected to? I don't fully know. Um, I think you know she was she was a writer and she was a performer. She's a storyteller, and um, but the stories that she told were were she retold, retranslated um, fairy tales, folk tales, myths. Um, she did you know. A, she her book Anana is like the the primary translation with Samuel Noah Kramer of of that text and she performed that um but it was not personal it was not autobiographical the things that she shared about her life were not were not that way so, i so i think that was part of it yeah um i think that she didn't really want to be a mother but had very mixed feelings about sort of having her daughter say like, wow, that wasn't, that wasn't enough for me. Your mothering was not, was not enough for me. Um, And I think that she had a lot of trauma in her childhood. She was working through her own sort of karmic Mm -hmm. cosmic shit. And I think was not ready for me to be public about her shit which Mm -hmm. it really was she was it was really my shit Mm -hmm. but she's in there she's my mom right 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 um you know what's so weird it reminds me of strange like Anselm Berrigan mm -hmm. wanted to write a he told me about this a few years ago a teen memoir of growing up in the Lower East Side Mm. and I thought fantastic because he's a great prose writer I think that he's really alive in it and it always excited me so I've always been like goading him and Alice said the only person who writes about me is me. What? And so I think he didn't write it. And now Alice, I, I saw oh, Alice, Alice in Paris and 
we talked and I even brought it up, but she was like, I don't think I could have said that. And I was like, I think you did say that. <laughs> That's incredible. And I talked to Alice about this book and about my mom. Um, they're almost the same age, Alice and my mom. They have uh, almost the same uh, birthday. They have the same haircutter in the East Village. And mm -hmm. and Alice's and Descent of Alette is based largely or the, the one of the two largest influences is my mother's book, Anana. So which is in mothers like right. this this sort of like how is it that i feel so influenced by alice mm -hmm. but not my mom but alice was influenced by my mom my right. actual mom yeah, yeah yeah and like this weird triangulation but you know it's interesting because i definitely wrote to alice saying like what the hell do i do right and what i remember alice saying is like just write your thing but like, but when it's Anselm, she's yeah. not. That's, that's wild. I know, I know. Holy and she didn't shit. remember it, but it was like it was memorable enough for Anselm to not write it. You know. Well, Anselm was a good kid compared to me, so I said, "I'm writing. I'm. I am going to publish this. Everybody's going to be okay." Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I'm not doing this to hurt you, and um, and then. She sent an email with my email to all of these cl close friends of hers saying, you know, I can't believe Rachel would do this to me. She's a terrible person, just like her dad. And, you know, she's broken my heart. And then she had uh, a heart attack within the next. It wasn't a heart attack. It was an aortic dissection. Literally her they, her aorta exploded. And she was rushed to emergency heart surgery in Taiwan. She called her therapist um, and said, call my brother and tell him I'm going into heart surgery. And they, they are saying that I have a 50-50 chance of, of surviving the surgery and tell Rachel not to publish the book. So that that's how 2013 started for me. And I was like. And then did she die? She did. Uh, Holy shit! Yeah, it's really fucked up. I mean, that's up. I have good traumatic stories about losing a parent, but that was a really good. That's a really good one. I mean, I've read about your story of watching your dad die. I mean, it's yeah. really. Uh, it's just yeah. It's like it's like it's it's on me. Yeah. It's just that, yeah. That's just it. And I, and it. I mean, I, I'm not to go yeah. there as I'm trying to go somewhere, but. Yeah. But also, like, I, it was so interesting to me in the past few days to think about that, to think about that story. And I'm using the word story because that's all I have access yeah, to, not yeah. the experience. Right. Um, and to realize, like, that one of the emotions that was coming up for me was jealousy because I was there. Yeah. 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 Um, and it's why my poems end the way they do. Wait, say more. I just think, I mean, I think when I teach or whenever I, read poetry i just think the end is the most important part it's uh -huh. just like how do you get out of the poem you know and i feel like it's something it's it's a read of yourself it's like like my dad's death was i think then impressed upon my chakras you know uh -huh. what i mean i feel like it's 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 in me now that death is like that and it's sudden and it just you slip away and i end my poems that way I, I'm always looking for either a smooth way out or a completely, you know. Wow. Because I sudden sudden death is my primary experience of death. Yeah. You know, but sudden, but 
gradual and watching, but still kind of was out of the fucking blue. Right. I mean, it's weird. Even as I say that, it's not true. He was so clearly dying right. at that time. But still, it was like I didn't know what to do with what I got, you know, because I was 11, you know. Yeah. And so you, I mean, I, I can't help feeling like that, that what your mother did and that confabulation of hers will or does affect the writer you are. I mean, holy shit, yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely learned... Uh, and I'm having to like relearn or unlearn or learn uh, around it. Like, oh, I absolutely could kill someone with my writing. Right. And not just anybody, but my own mother. Yeah. And I love that with these tragedies, it, we have permission to laugh. Yeah. That's I mean, what I feel like. It's like the anxiety that you laugh at because that's what death is. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So I got asked to do these lectures. Uh, my before my mom had died then my mom died and I was like well I'm I I decided I was done writing poetry and writing anything personal forever and ever because like I'd killed my mother what am I going to do next kill my dad kill my husband kill my children kill right. myself like like I got to stop writing like that's terrible right. but I was being paid to write these lectures right. and I was like well I'll just do that like, I have to do that. I'm, like, right. a very good girl. Yeah. And uh, so I started writing these lectures, and I wrote about confessional poetry and photography, and I realized, like, oh, I'm just, I'm just, like, trying to explain to my dead mother that there's, like, a history, a lineage of people who wrote about, you know, their parents or their children and didn't you know they suffered but like they didn't kill other people necessarily right. you give birth to your parents by writing about them right yeah my mother she just couldn't she she couldn't go there with me yeah you know my mother dealt with my writing by just not reading it that you know that would have been a better and just outcome to, you know but she wasn't an intellectual so that was i mean she wasn't dumb she was a reader mm -hmm. but it was like she could compartmentalize her worlds very well and so that's what she did right yeah Okay, so anyway, I wrote all these lectures, and then I had to I had to rewrite them, and then I had to turn them into like, and then I had to give them, and that's a different thing than writing them, and then yeah. I had to like, and then I turned them into essays, and now they're being published, and I was just like going, ah. okay, at the very beginning of COVID, um, so I decided to get divorced right as COVID hit New York at the United States and yeah. New York in particular, and um. And so I started reading for now and I couldn't read it. Like I was like, what is happening to me? I don't know why. And I started reading it. I liked it. I stopped halfway through. It's not a long book. Right. Um, and then I, after I met Michael, after we were seeing each other, I started, I read, I started it again uh -huh. and I could not put it down. Uh -huh. And I was like, oh my God, I, I, kind of like weirdly grew into like I, I hadn't remembered reading half of it uh -huh. but I had revised the lectures and like sent them to print mm -hmm. all with it kind of in me mm -hmm. and I feel like what you did was what I was trying to do but did not accomplish which was to give a lecture that was not a lecture to find a way to talk on the page or 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 be 
on the page with a live audience mm-hmm. or be on the page as a kind of conversation to think about like why all of my life I so needed an audience like the audience and the writing and mm-hmm. I and I ke- I keep coming in into into contact with this in your work and in your talking about your work about writing as a this is is absolutely what I feel and the only thing I was really trying to say in all of these lectures was like I write to be real Mm -hmm. like I'm not sure I'm real Mm -hmm. until I saw it in your work I saw it in a few other Bernadette Mayer, I feel like there's it's a different it's a different uh-huh. way, but there's there it's in the work that means the most to me, but not exactly like this. And that and something it was like I was I could see you doing it on the page. The page became a living conversational space in mm-hmm. for now. And and I, I, I like like just when I got towards the end of the book, I, I was saying out loud, fuck you, Eileen. Mm. Like, what are you kidding me? Are you how are you doing this? How am I inside? I'm with you like uh-huh. you're 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 real. I'm and I'm real as a reader. And I'm and you're ter- and oh, my God, you're you're it's coming back. It's, it, you know, the archive, the like the 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 photographs the um you know the present the like everything is everything is is here and it's coming back and it's but it is not and here's the beginning of the question Mm -hmm. again it is not the male form Mm -hmm. of the memoir the lecture the essay certainly not the five paragraph essay not the thesis with mm-hmm. the evidence and the conclusion it's also not the the hybrid genre lyric essay and i'm just like oh my god but you did it mm-hmm. you did some kind of like alchemy mm-hmm. like you i do i really feel like for now is a new form mm. and i don't know what my question is other than to say like part of that new form to me seems to be how short it is Mm -hmm. and the way it moves and the way it doesn't have kind of chapters and and signposts that 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 a reader like you just have to get inside it's like getting Mm -hmm. into a pool yeah you just get in there absolutely yeah yeah and it's sort of like the work you want the work to be around you right and stuff and that it's a projection in a way that in an invitation all at once so then why do you still want to write a thousand page novel that's like in some ways the big phallic like Oh, or I want to say not? that there's a completely other way to do it, like because more I've read, like the pillow book. Yeah, I mean, I've read, I've read, you know, like I read Gravity's Rainbow. Mm-hmm. I didn't read, um, you know, David Foster Wallace's. I just thought, why do I need to read that? Right. You know, Infinite it's just chest. like. So it is kind of a a fuck you. Mm-hmm. I just wanna. 
I want to do it, but obviously, I mean, I just feel like my whole thing about prose is um, like Chelsea Girl, like I had to, for me, I feel like I had to invent a novel that I could write. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like, is this necessary to reinvent the form in order to occupy it, in order to wield it? It has, the form has to become a different thing. And so I feel like, I feel that about, if the book is called All My Loves, mm. you know, and I feel like I'm going to, I'm reinventing what love is for me and, and how, how to occupy a novel, you know, and it's just like, you know, and I'm cheating in all sorts of ways by bringing in, like I'll bring in Tristram Shandy and I'll bring in this novel, my filmmaker, which is, I've already written and I'll bring, I'll bring in parts of for now. So it's sort of like, like when I write about, like I write Moira Davy, do you know Moira Davy? Mm -hmm. And when I when I I wrote about her and Peter Hujar during the pandemic, and Moira had a show in Berlin that I think she she went there literally. She installed, she curated it, so she curated her work and Peter's in together, which was such a great thing to do, you know. And um, and I think she went to so I think she went to Berlin, but and then the show was up, and then the show was closed because of the pandemic, and then the show opened, but like. She invited me to write about her, and so what? And what I what I do as a performance, kind of all the time when I write about visual artists, is I kind of I kind of figure out a way for them to inhabit my world. Mm -hmm. Like I install. So with her, literally, I I printed out all the photographs and I put them all over here, and I also put them out in the hall in my in the building, so that I was living in the show. And the show was in my building and in my world. It was funny because I wrote it after. It was maybe the next thing I wrote after for now. Huh. And so I was still in my apartment, you know. Because for now was written just before the pandemic. Right. Which is so funny because I, I finished it in Marfa. And part of the problem with for now that was so, that was so interesting was that the first part, I mean, I, I it's a 20,000 word piece. And so... I quickly thought, wait a second, but that's not an hour. And I was invited to give an hour talk. And then for which I got, I think I, I got, you know, like 10, well, I got five or 10,000 up front. And then you got another five when you delivered it. But until, no, until, until I gave them all 20, oh, I got another five for doing the talk. But until I did all 20, I could not get the final five. So a talk is 7,000 words. Huh. And so I gave the talk, and now I owe them 6,000 words, <laughs> and I have already shot my wad. <laughs> I have nothing else to say. And what the fuck? And I resent, I mean, I'm just like, and here's these people at this, I'm the dinner speaker at this party where these people have gotten $165,000 for doing nothing. <laughs> this fucking Rebecca Solnit and all these writers who just got the call. Yeah. And I was like, I want to be them. Yeah. I'm not Patty Smith and now Scarred. I'm Eileen Miles. Yeah. But one of the weirdnesses of this strange position of my career is that I'm the great Eileen Miles and the kind of rewarded, unrewarded Eileen. You know, so it's just like I never got the hundred and sixty-five thousand dollar check. You know, but I'm invited to speak and be the great writer. Right. You know, it's sort of like I always think of like, did you ever read the woman, the woman warrior? Sure. So there's a there's a the the bigger king on the throne and they're wearing rags and I always think about that like mm -hmm. I'm like I'm the bigger king you know it's sort of so that so the the hard part was so then I just didn't want to write the second half of it and I and I you know my agent was like you know you don't have to do it most uh -huh. most people don't 
apparently that's part of the history of the series. Interesting. Is that it's like people don't want to finish the book. You so know, for $5,000, you're writing 7,000 more words. It's bullshit. Okay, so the, wait, the first half, basically, or the first 7,000 words were, were, were for the spoken. talk. Were, were, were spoken. And then I had to go oh, and fucking shit. finish. Like, I did that in September, and it was due in January or February. So I'm in Marfa. We're still not in the pandemic yet. I've been writing my novel all fall. I don't want to write this. I, I so resent having to write this. And I was like, Ugh. so it was kind of extracting it from myself, you know, and when spatially. Did, did you write physically the first part and then read it? As a talk? Okay. So it wasn't that you like, it wasn't like a David Anton moment. No, no, I wrote it and then I gave it. But I, but I wrote it imagining giving it. So it was, it was already a projection. Spoken. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Cause, then, because I feel like one of the things about my writing is that I really imagine I'm listening. Mm -hmm. I always feel that. It's just like, I feel like, I mean, there's a simultaneity of it, but I always feel like the act of writing is a performance of listening. You know, and that thing just gets turned on. And then, and sometimes it's so funny. Like, I had to write, I mean, I really have, have, I have really interesting writing experiences with writing about artists because, you know, like in the 80s and 90s, I used to write reviews and I don't write reviews anymore. But now, you know, I get invites as me to write about Taboo or most recently, um, Marley Freeman, this painter mm. right here. And so I know Marley and, um, the gallery invited me. It was like they had no idea. They invited me to write twenty poems about Marley's work. Uh -huh. I was like, "Do you understand what twenty poems is? That's <laughs> huge. That's like a third of a book for many people." Right. And I was like, "How can I do this?" So what I did was I decided that I would write sonnets. Mm -hmm. I printed out. You know, they sent me a document which was all the paintings, and I'd seen the paintings live. So I printed them all out in colors, you know, Xeroxing, and I sat there with a legal pad, uh -huh. and I had to go out. I was going to go out to hear some music in an hour and a half, so I thought, I'm just going to write it really fast. So I wrote the grid of sonnets on each page, and I just wrote, in an hour and a half, I wrote 21 sonnets. Amazing. And then later, I thought, I'm going to get crazy, and I thought, what about Petrarchan, Shakespearean? Uh -huh. um, and so then I wrote the rhyme schemes for those, and so I wrote five more following the rhyme schemes. And then I, and then it was, you know, but the thing, the reason I mentioned it was that the first two felt a little literal and plot. I was describing my door, a mm -hmm. little literal and plotting. But the thing that was so interesting was whatever the exalted piece that happens when you're writing, like you're writing and suddenly it's like oxygen or dimensionality comes into the writing, and it's like you're on. The, 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 it's like, and I, I do always imagine a balloon where mm. it's sort of like you're writing, you know, a balloon is a, like a flat, unblown thing and you're writing on the outside of a balloon and then you start to, and the writing changes position and it's just like, I literally feel like I'm always aiming for that second phase where the air is in there and the thing is, is dimensional, you know? I just want to describe your door just for one second, which is, yeah. so there's this amazing um, poster, huh. a reproduction of Marley Freeman that is, uh, no offense, put, taped to your door so haphazardly. Uh -huh. It's been better, but it's gone downhill. <laughs> yeah, With blue painter's tape. And then there's like this blue that within the artwork, 
that's not the same color, but it's sort of reminiscent of the blue painter's tape. And then you've got your masks um, on the doorknob and the safety notice and the peephole. And it's sort of like the artwork is like coming off. It's very impermanent. Um, and it's so funny because this door only recently, like the, the door was that stone gray apartment door for a long time. But the painter, the painter Hannah, Hannah Bierman is a really good friend of mine. She did that little that dog in the kitchen. But uh -huh. Her paintings are amazing. She's like my favorite young artist. And I got her to come over here and paint the door with me. Are night. you kidding me? So the door itself is painted by a painter. Yes. You. This is this is crazy. And and then. And the, so the, the first part, but so the first sonnet is all about all that. About the door. Is about the door and, and the, the poster and the poster and Hannah Bierman. And nothing and about this collection of of visual items is straight. Everything is askew. Because I love wabi sabi. Do you know what that is? Well, yeah, but say it's 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 the the I think the Japanese idea of things being just a little bit off. Uh huh. As as being kind of the way of the universe, and I'm I'm passionately engaged with that i mean i you know i felt it before i read it and heard it but it's just like that's beauty for me and it was like the the super just recently put in that fire thing i was like will that be okay but i think it's even better i mean so, so i can't even believe this yeah i mean the 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 door as palette um and then like the natural gas um the pipe above it with the natural gas which is a new addition this is the punishment for paying so little rent because i thought <laughs> Like in January, they cut off the gas and said, we've got a, we're working, you know, Con Ed's working or something. And the gas never came back until a few weeks ago. Huh. And so they gave us hot plates. Yeah. It was very funny. And I went and got a big stupid, you know, Mr. Coffee to yeah. create hot water. And I lived that way for all that time. And then I kept bugging the landlord, I mean, the super. And then he was like, the, and then they, and then they did that. You know, mm -hmm. and I was like, what? You know, and, and then they still didn't turn on my stove. And so then I was like, and then he said, we want to give you an electric stove. Does, the stove doesn't work. I was like, how can it not work when you put these pipes in? Yeah. You know, and I don't want an electric stove. I want my little, because yeah. the stove is a waterman. It's like a kind of a, it used to be a factory. I've researched it. It used to be a factory in Brooklyn. Uh-huh. Um, and it's just, you know, it's really an old, old... I mean, I was like, I moved in here in 1977. This this was probably here since the 30s. Yeah. That stove. So just like, I was like, what? And then, you know, and then another month or two passed. And then I bugged the super again. And he was like, I'll fix it. And he sent a guy up. It was like nothing to fix it. It was just turning it on from behind. But it <laughs> turns out those pipes are about delivering gas to the other apartments. Oh. I am being used. I'm a throughway to the because there are renovated apartments that pay three thousand dollars, yeah, and there's unrenovated that pay five hundred dollars, right, right. And so that I'm just like, so my plan is to paint it like a secondary, an off white. You know, I kind of love it. It makes me think of also of like the public private nature of the hallway. Yeah. Um, and now also the public private nature of the inside uh -huh. uh, the 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 gasway right the right. you know you're the conduit and then you know the wabi-sabi nature of this makes me feel as i do in your work in your poems in your writing 
your physical presence. So yes, 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 yes. You know, it's like the hand of the poet is on all these awkward installations of things. It's so funny because even you can't from here the the stove on the far left is a yellow knob Uh as opposed, and that knob was just gone for years, and somebody either moved out of the building or died, and their stove just like this was sitting in the backyard, and I was like, oh my god, I can get a knob. And so eventually I will paint it black. I, I think I would like it to restore it to its... Wow. Like. But this insane... I know it's just like the thing that's so crazy about me in this apartment is there is insane slow adjustments I make. I mean, I tried to... In the past year, I thought, I'm, t- I'm ready. Like all these things here were built in the 90s by a friend named Phil who used to take care of... Wrote my then Rosie. And when I went to Russia for six months and he said, I'll live in your apartment with Rosie but you've got to let me fix something. Uh-huh. So he built all these counters. So it's like 30 wow. years have passed. So I'm ready to do the next renovation. Yeah. And so I started to talk about, I've talked to maybe three different contractors and people, and there was even this amazing dyke contractor who I like very much who, first she came once and she gave me an estimate of 15 or 20,000, which seemed kind of high, but, um, and then I just never heard from her again. And then the pandemic happened. And then she, out of the blue, she calls me and says, hey, let's talk. So she came back. It turns out she's now dating a poet. That's why she called back. Ah. So she comes back and then we have a long detailed talk about what we're gonna do. And it was really, I mean, she was gonna renovate almost everything, you know? And it's like, but then I got her bill and it was $50,000. Wow. And I was like, I don't own this apartment. Are you crazy? <laughs> right. So it's just sort of like it keeps being the thing that can't happen, the new renovation, which is really funny. I think that's also something that, that people who, I mean, yeah, I'm just thinking about what, how in 2013 I spent six months empty. So our apartment, 10 pat, uh, 10 patch in place um was rent controlled um so the landlord you know who had evicted my mom and then lost this lawsuit got my mom got back in um i mean it was like the happiest day of his fucking life that when my mom died because because she didn't have rights to give it to somebody else in the family nope that's part of how the lawsuit was settled Uh, was that she said till the end of her life exactly and um (laughs) you know Think of your mother's death creating such glee. Oh, in I mean, that I plan. really think that he was like dancing. Oh yeah, and and, and this fucking asshole. Anyway, I'm, and 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 you know, growing up on Patch and Place, he was he got almost every low income person oh. out of of. Did you of know Patch Sarah Miles? No, she was a poet who was in there for a while. I wonder if it was a sublet. Because she was there for, I mean, I, in, in the 70s, uh-huh. I used to go there all the time because she lived there. Um, I and mean, I saw Juna Barnes you go did out you? in the body bag. Oh, And oh. I went, one time I went up there to help a, a, a neighbor, I was a kid, yeah. uh, deliver her medication to her. And I, I mean, I can, I can remember the, the smell and the, and the sight. She had a, like a, like a small Lazy Susan, a multi-tiered Lazy Susan with pills and wow. I just I remember that. And then right next door to me was this guy, Mr. Lavari. I don't even know his first name, uh-huh. um, but he was a vet um, and he uh, lived there. were There were a lot of the apartments in number eight 
didn't have their bathrooms inside, and so there were shared bathrooms in the right. hallway. We had our own bathroom because my my father and mother redid it themselves um, in all sorts of like illegal ways. Um, but Mr. Lavari would just come and sit out on the stoop. He was mm-hmm. not super well. Um, and as a little girl, I spent hours just sitting. I would sit on the stoop of of number ten, and he was right next to me, number eight. He was this old man, and we were—I don't know what we would talk about, but the landlord got him out, got everybody out because he—he he just sued everybody, and nobody could afford to protect themselves. And my mm. dad was like, "You're never gonna get me out." Um, and then when my parents split up, and my dad moved to the Upper West Side, um, and my mom stayed there the lawyer had a drug problem and wasn't responding to these eviction notices on behalf of my mom who was traveling all over the place and illegally subletting and, you know, doing all this stuff, which everybody did. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how they got her out. Anyway, um, to, to, to lose access to the place that was, is, I mean, Everything in there was a story. Yes, yeah. made by someone, bartered. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, bought on a trip, all mm-hmm. this stuff, and then you know, I had six months to get all of my mom's stuff out of there and turn over the keys. And you and know, she was alive then. No, she had died. Oh. She died in Taiwan. Oh, oh, you mean when she died? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And so I was like, uh, all right. Um, and then I will never see it again. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's intense. It's bizarre. I know. I know. It's really bizarre. I mean, I came so close to letting go of this place. I just thought, maybe it's time. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm ready. You know? And it was just like, and suddenly, I think in September, I was in therapy, and I just had such a pang, mm-hmm. such a visceral pang, and I just thought, I'm not ready. Yeah. I, I still want this apartment. It's still mine. Mm-hmm. And I just... And it was the the person I was dating at the time was really putting pressure on me because she she had a, a vision and it was like that I was going to get a larger apartment for us in Brooklyn. She already lived on Long, in Long Island, and so I was to supply the city apartment, mm. and it had to be big enough for the two of us. And she was always just furious because this is so obviously my apartment. Yeah, and I thought, well, because it is, because yeah. <laughs> it is. Don't be, you know, what I mean, like. It was like, so there was just, for her, there was no vision. And I think she wanted to have kids. Uh And it was just like her vision of moving, starting a family did not include me hanging on to my apartment. You know, even when I said, well, I'll just keep my apartment, but we can get another place. People used to do that all the time. And she was like, no, no, it needs, she needed me to make the commitment to her. And it was just like, and again, it was one of the greatest decisions. I'm really glad because that was before the pandemic. Yeah. It's like it would have been so ridiculous. I found an apartment in Crown Heights that was big, and it was twenty seven hundred bucks. Uh-huh. And um, but I was really happy in Marfa during the pandemic. Yeah. So I was really glad that I didn't let go of my apartment, and it just you know. And then we broke up, and it was just. I'm glad you didn't give get give up your apartment. Do you want to read the beginning of for now? It's so funny because I um. The experience I'm describing um, is the chair you're sitting in. It's really funny. I think last year I got the I got the beautiful bound versions Yale published of Patti Smith and Nausgaard giving this talk, and I sat in a chair in my apartment, and I took a look at each of them, and at least as far as the beginnings, both of them sounded like 
themselves. And I thought, well, I can certainly do that. When I received the invitation to give this talk, I think it was a summer before last or maybe that spring, I was given a date and a fee and I kind of put it at the back of my mind as something nice that would happen the following September or October. And then in August, I got in touch with Michael because I hadn't heard anything, but it turns out that's because I had the wrong year. And I figure I can start with that. And I'll return to it now and again. 2018's talk would have been different, and 2019 has been a chaotic and exceptionally beautiful year, right? Crowded with incident, horrible. And time itself had a kind of optic quality, full of great and awful things to see, and the year has been busy getting copied, that way being memorable. And these are the things I'm always feeding into my purpose, which is to write and maybe to get this part over with right away because I need an alibi. I have a very definite feeling that I am simply living, and how would that be possible if you also had a kind of ambition and fewer and fewer concrete plans as you moved out of childhood wanting to discharge it? Alibi, of course, implies a kind of elsewhere, and as you translate it into many languages, it remains alibi. What's the word for alibi in Czech? It's alibi. I have been arming myself with philosophies for years that support the notion that the point is to be here, to be present, which I think is the truly hard part, and yet I keep coming back to it. It's undeniably true, and writing it, turns out, is the easiest way to copy that feeling. I have been doing it for years. I would like to be here. I think I'm here. And the more I write and the more you read it, the more it's simply a fact. So that's pretty much done, and now I'm living here. The second detail per pertaining to the invite I received to give this talk is that I've been living in an apartment in New York for 42 years, so that's where most of my life has occurred. My living, my thinking, my copying. It's one of those East Village rent-stabilized apartments, and my building had just been sold in 2017 for the umpteenth time. And pretty soon after my lease was up, I guess probably in June, and the new landlord, the new landlady totally took her time getting the new lease to me, actually all of us, which of course spelt danger. And finally, I got an email from her, my landlady, Elaine Moosey, saying she wanted to meet each one of us to hand us our leases. And I thought, that's sweet. And a few weeks later, she's standing right there in my apartment. She's a conservative-looking woman, I bet about 10 years younger than me. And as soon as she got inside here, apartment 3C, she goes, I'll give you 75000 to leave. That's a visitor, right? I chuckled and rejected her offer. And she went on to say that she knows that as well as living here in the small, very inexpensive apartment, I also have a house in Marfa, Texas, which is not illegal, but a fact and that she, Elaine Moosey, knows it. I'm being watched. That was the feeling I got, and she asked me what I do, and I said, I'm a writer. I didn't say poet, which was, more, which was interesting. I generally do say that because it is far more perverse. People generally don't know what a poet does, but in the moment with my landlady, I also grabbed a fat book of poetry out of a brown box sitting there, right next to the tub, and I flashed it, even thinking maybe it would be nice to give her one, also wondering if there was anything incriminating in it. And she looked right through the two of us, my book and I, and then she said, smiling, wouldn't you rather write in Texas? <laughs> so that's where I thought I, thought I would start. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like it, it, it already has so many of the things uh-huh yeah um copying and the here and writing and now i'm living here and right 
naming names mm-hmm. and um, uh, place and uh, okay, so I, ch- I changed her name is fictionalized. I changed her name. Interesting. And it was really interesting to try and find. I mean, I would be happy to say it's actually Dora Shore. Interesting. Okay. Dora Shore. I thought, how can you possibly beat that for fiction? Yeah. Why, I, why did you change it? Well, because I thought legally, I don't know. I just, I was, I think I was still, was I still going through the case at that time? I might have been. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, I think I asked the lawyer. He said, don't use her name. Yeah. yeah. Um, when I, I went and sat in the audience, um, in the audience, interesting, in the courtroom um, during my, my mom's eviction trial and uh the landlord had these like two massive new jersey's like thug head lawyers and my mom the eviction aged her i mean she she really wasn't old she died at 70 um and the eviction happened years before so it must have been in her Man, was it her late fifties? Oh God! Where did she live in the four years when she wasn't? Um, it was two years, and she lived with different friends. Um, they came with vans and just and and took as much stuff as they could. They just threw it in the van. You know, she'd lived there since nineteen sixty eight, um, and then put a huge padlock on the on the door, and she had to keep putting her rent into escrow. Um, and all this stuff. Um, but she lived with my godmother for several months. She's not an easy person to have as a house guest mm-hmm. at all. I was, I, I, now I remember when it was because I was at Iowa um, in the MFA program. So she couldn't really come live with me, um, which was good for me. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, so it was 96 to 98 was oh. when she was evicted. Oh. But I remember, so my mom got up on the stand and you know this is a person who what is you know new york city's official storyteller and had like a whole day you know for her anyway she you know, she was she was a big deal in her professional mm-hmm. world and these two lawyers said to her so you're a storyteller and she said yes and they said, so you so you make things up and it was just, it was literally the first, and you just, you just, I thought, oh, you motherfuckers. Uh-huh. Like, and, and that same sort of like, oh, you know, this idea of like, what's incriminating in the book of poetry? Or do you change the, I thought this, I thought, Eileen, look at you. That's really the land, the landlady's real name. And I thought, that's what you get for fucking with Eileen Miles. You get uh-huh. your name in here. But it doesn't really matter uh-huh. that you fictionalize, you know, that you change the name. I'm glad you did. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's that's super interesting. Well, that's I feel like that's the poetry of it. It's sort of like to try and figure out what name, if I can't use Dora Shore, which is such a great name, what would, you know, I really was like Elaine Moosey. I think mm-hmm. it has an equally absurd feeling. yeah. You know, yeah. So, uh, are you seeing anybody now? No. Nah. What's that like? It's good. It was funny. I was just thinking about it today. I was like, I don't think I mind if spending a few years uh-huh. just with myself. I mean, I kind of. I mean, like literal. I've been uh, apart from my last girlfriend for two years. I mean, we well actually a year and a half because we had the long lingering period where we were still actually in each other's lives quite a lot, and mm. then we cut it. But the, and then I had. 
<laughs> it was funny. I had a, like a three-day date with somebody in June, which was really very intense and great and sort of reopened me up to the experience of seeing somebody. But I just feel like my life is right now, it just feels really good. Uh -huh. um, so I don't, I think, you know, when I meet somebody, I meet somebody. But I'm even, even I, I, you know, I very briefly went on OkCupid and I thought, no, it's just too weird. I'm just going to get weird energy. Like we're already, I used such a small part of my face and still somebody that knew me kind of, you know, and I was like, so I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think computer dating is for me. Interesting. But I'll, you know, yeah. I, I like, I like, I like being, it's fun. It's intense to just have, I mean, I go to bed and I'm like, wow, this is my life. You know, me and the dog. Yeah. You know, and my, I love my bed. I love the view. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also I not, and nobody having anything to say about my schedule because that was a big issue. It always is an issue with relationships. I mean, I really f need to find somebody who actually thinks it's cool that we don't spend all our time together. Yeah. And yeah. maybe don't live together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You yeah, get to keep your apartment. Exactly, yeah. No, I don't need to live with anybody. Right. Yeah. Okay, I have a dating question. Uh-huh. So I, wanna, I, I would love to hear you talk about um, sobriety. Mm-hmm. But I also would like to ask my selfish question first so that I make sure I get to it, mm -hmm. which is, do you think, what, what's, you talked about somewhere sobriety as being a state and a new state and sort of having to learn how to write poems sober, mm -hmm. how to, you know, the difference of sober sex, mm -hmm. um, uh, and just like all, all the things. Yeah. Um, and so I guess I, I'm, and I also know that sobriety is a, is a daily choice. Uh -huh. It's not like I, like I, you, you, you had some, uh, interview with some woman, I think in some Dutch woman. And she was like, and, and is that why you've made the decision to never drink again? And you said, I would never say, I would never say that it's, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm making that decision today. Yeah. I'm making that decision today. Um, my question is, do you think that it's important for somebody who is making the decision every day to stay sober or to be sober mm -hmm. to be in a relationship with someone else who's making that same decision or not? No, 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 not at all. Interesting. No, I mean, I've dated people who drink and people who don't drink mm -hmm. and it's different, but. I, the reason I ask is because I would. alcohol, I don't, th I mean, I, I yeah. would avoid being involved with an active alcoholic. Right. You know, and it's people's drinking is pretty funny because sometimes people are obsessed with whether they're alcoholics or not. And also, if you don't drink, people drink in a particular way around you. Mm. You know, they use you as a way to not drink. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly you see them drunk and it's like, whoa, you know. Interesting. So that you just you get sort of a performance of somebody else's relationship to alcohol, because you're so, I'm such a a marker, mm -hmm. you know. I guess that that might be partly the answer to the question, which is there's an overlap that I'm interested in between trying to be present, mm -hmm. um, trying to be conscious, trying to be awake. For, for some people, that also means being sober mm -hmm. um, or clean of drugs and alcohol. 
for other people it's it means other things mm-hmm. i'm also really interested in for myself like thinking about like you know currently in this very moment i'm wearing an estradiol patch i'm on hormone replacement therapy yeah and um How old are you? 50 um, but I had a hysterectomy, uh, oh. a very unwanted hysterectomy uh, in 2019. I'm also taking antidepressants and these little, probably placebo lavender pills that give me these little lavender burps uh, that are supposedly helping with my anxiety. So I'm thinking about I'm thinking about medications. I'm thinking uh-huh. about I'm even thinking about like exercise mm-hmm. and. I have an injury, so I can't really exercise the way I used to. And so I don't get that endorphin, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, high. Yeah. And that's really difficult mm-hmm. um, for me. I'm thinking about sex. I'm thinking about like sober sex or sex with a person that you know is not high or drunk. Right. And how different that is, even to be the other person. I bet. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know. I'm just thinking about like what it means to be in a relationship with someone where the foundation of the relationship is to be sometimes together, sometimes apart, right? Like not living together, mm-hmm. but whether sub- what what is the role of sobriety in the togetherness and the presentness rather than being altered. And a person who is not, you know, sort of concretely working on that as a goal mm-hmm. has a lot of kind of quote unquote easy ways of getting out of themselves or getting to some other place. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's where the question comes from, really, which is sort of like as a person who's had both experiences, mm-hmm. um, And both experiences of writing mm-hmm. and of being trying to be present um, or being present. or I don't know. I well, don't even I'm, know what I'm, I'm asking. I'm sober yeah. for so long that it's just like, this is just who I am. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's almost 40 years. Mm-hmm. So it's just like to think about like going out and getting loaded at this point in my life is to actually shatter my life on so many levels. Like, I don't know who that person is. Like Eileen drinking would be just Eileen dying. That would Mm. just be the decision. So it's sort of like I think this is very much in relationship to somebody where they're drunk or whether they're drunk or sober that I might be in a relationship with. This is like what there is. Yeah. You know, so that's and, and, you know, and the thing about sobriety is that it's varying. It's sort of like, you know, I think you probably know more than people who are not sober how every day is really different. You know, and then I, you know, because I just wake up every morning and I, I feel like somebody else. Mm. You know, it's sort of like, I mean, obviously this, and I lean this, that, that returns, but it's sort of like, you know, I wake up in this chemical mix that has to do with exactly what I ate, exactly how much sleep I got, exactly what's going on, exactly what I'm anxious about, exactly what the day, coming day looks like. And so then, you know, and so then the whole, you know, the other person I might be involved with is a whole other entity of conditions. You know, so I think, I guess I think that sobriety becomes 
I want to say anonymous almost. It seemed almost seems beside the point. This mm. is just who I am. So it's just like this person encounters that person, you know, and I'm assuming they are who they are, you know, with their changes and their variations and their and their struggles and their, you know. And even, you know, and, and I didn't even add in, you know, physical health right. or the lack of it in each and both people. Or place like New York, Texas. Um, I mean, you know, sobriety, you know, I think alcoholism is a disability, mm -hmm. you know, so it's just like it is part of my condition as well as aging, mm -hmm. you know, and all those processes are going on. It's just like I probably think of aging as more of an issue in relationships than sobriety, at least at this point in time, you know, because I tend to date people younger than me. Mm -hmm. And then it's like their comfort level with, you know, and my comfort level, it's like my comfort level might be worse than theirs mm -hmm. with, with masking my, you know, what I think of as the unacceptable aspects of aging, you know, and then, then I'm hurting myself because I'm not being who I am and I'm not being in the present with them because I don't want them to judge me for being old, mm -hmm. you know, or reject me for it. Do you feel that the other person when you when you're when you're seeing someone are you as aware of the other person waking up in a, in a new day every day like is that person new to you every day or is it important to you that that person remain constant in some way and and how do other people feel about the many Eileen's yeah i think i think they might be troubled by the latter but i i don't require them to be constant, but I probably am a little more obsessed with my many, my many Eileen's than there, and I I read them in a in a probably a s simpler way, you know, unless they tell me. Right. I mean, know? was the girlfriend who wanted you to give up this apartment and live, you know, in a big enough place for both of you in Brooklyn all the time? Was that about like I want I need you to be one Eileen? Yeah, yeah, I think so, and I think that um, their idea of a relationship is this consistency, you uh -huh. know, which I, d I don't accept, you know, and just like I think that, and also it's it's interesting, you know, I mean, I came from a very a very fucked up, stable home, mm. you know, it's like it was working class. Both my parents worked. Um, my dad's alcoholism was just like a character in the house. It was huge, and the and our life was wrapped around his work life and his, his disease. And my mother, I think, was probably some variety of mentally ill or borderline, but really, you know, really together and mm. kind of a strange workaholic. She would have been a great career woman. Mm. You know, she really was a really smart woman, and she didn't go to college. She wanted to, but she felt indebted to her sister. She was an orphan. She had really, I'm sure she was sexually and violently abused by you know she, she was passed around mm -hmm. in her childhood and you know so my mother really shut down but really visceral feeling woman really smart woman very performative mm -hmm. so only recently i realized i mean she used to read to us every night before we went to sleep she was a great reader mm -hmm. i always thought of my dad as a creative one and my mother is just like the functionary but in fact she was just full of light and character and detail and it wasn't until i i had um i was in an anthology called it was like Irish-American 
female fiction writers. Mm -hmm. And there was a reading at the Cambridge Public Library. And my mother came mostly because one of the other women in the book was somebody from from um, Oprah's book club, and she loved that person's writing. Uh-huh. So she's very excited that I was in a reading with this person, you know, or this in a book with this person. I I don't know that that person came or was there. I can't I can't remember. Huh. But um, but my mother came, and it was so funny because she Chelsea Girls had I was reading a story from Chelsea Girls. It was my father's alcoholism. Uh-huh. So this anthology and my mother had a copy of the book and she worked the room going to all the other authors and getting them to sign the book <laughs> and she was very you know it's fiction <laughs> fiction you know uh-huh but she was completely out there and socially aggressive and i just thought i had never seen my mother in this situation before huh. and i just thought oh she would have liked a life you know and she just you know just like she was too afraid to make changes in her own you know, she just wasn't the kind of person who would go to college later in life or, you know, like she took a, a Shakespeare's sonnets course at the Arlington Boys and Girls Club. Wow. And I was like, wow. And and then for the last class, they had to write their own sonnet. And I said, Mom, what did you do? And she said, oh, I didn't go. Oh. Right? Wow. I know. Wow. That's so telling. But... um. But what I, I, I led into all of this to tell you something about the family. Oh, okay. So the family I grew up in, well, my, my mother marshaled the time and the, you know, like my dad was the chaos and my mother was the order, mm-hmm. you know, and then, and then my dad died and it was just the order and it was soulless because my dad was the fun and the pleasure. And, you know, um, my mother was, had her fun and pleasure too, but it was different, you know, it just, but it was very stable. And so I've had several girlfriends, not all, but I've had a couple of girlfriends who came from divorced parents, mm-hmm. and um, and the hurt, the particular hurt that comes from that in childhood, and maybe whatever the reality of those families were like, and those both those girlfriends really wanted to make a family, hmm. and they really wanted a thing of order to exist. And it was so weird because, of course, I came from such order that I have no, you know, it's like I didn't come from a progressive family. I came from a conservative family. But but I came from an art-loving family, yeah. a book-loving, art-loving, music-loving family, you know. And they didn't know how I got to be who I am. And so it just the process just scared my mother and just made her anxious because she didn't know where I was going. And mm-hmm. she was really surprised that it led to something, you know. But um, But I, so I just... I, you know, in every place I go, I am for, the, you know, like I'm, I mean, I am really repressed and I have lots of ways in which I can't speak up for myself, mostly in relationships. Mm-hmm. But, but in the public sector, I'm outspoken and I, that's my space. Mm-hmm. And I'm always the person who will say the thing that's in the room that needs to be said. And um, so I just am always in these relationships with people who are trying to fix their childhood. And I am not, or I guess I am trying to fix my childhood in this completely other way. I love when you say discharge your childhood in just even that in that part that you uh, read read yeah. from for now. I've been I've been thinking about that word as like maybe maybe it's time for me at age 50 to stop trying to fix my childhood and just discharge it a little bit. Uh-huh. Yeah, that seems like a really a really good transition. Yeah. Um, do you remember what 
you were doing, what your life was like when you turned 50, what you were working on, what your concerns were? I think it was when I went to San Diego. I'm pretty sure that yeah, well, I remember the relationship I was in. I was with, with one of these two women who was uh -huh. building a family, and we had a house in Provincetown, and we had, an, you know, two th I, you know, my, it's really easy. Like, I, I was born in 1949, December of 49, so the year is always, you know, 2008, I was, you know, four, I mean, well, now, now I'm completely, but, you know, 99, I was 49, then 50. You know, 2008, mm -hmm. I was 58. You know, it's just, it's very easy to know what age. So, yeah, I was like, I was sort of at the end of a relationship. And I was, um, was I, I was working on Cool For You. Mm. And I was working on um, Skies. And, um, and then I had a breakup at the end of, like in the fall. And then, um. You know, as you say, and then there was another year, and then I, you know, and then I met somebody. Did I meet somebody in the spring, and then got in another relationship? And then in that year, it was I think it was two thousand one. Mm -hmm. It was not not you know, and then and then I got hired by UCSD, which was really out of the blue, and then completely uplifted every possession in this apartment pretty much. I sent all my books. I sent the whole world. Wow. Because San Diego, the UC system had money at that time, and so they bought me a house, basically. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of why I took the job. And also because my girlfriend at the time was getting her PhD. So which I, I had what she wanted. Uh -huh. So she really, I wasn't sure if I wanted to move to San Diego and do this. And she was like, my God. You know, she valued it. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted her to value me. And so that was part of me making that choice. Okay. And was, when you talk about aging, was 50 the, you know, obviously I'm asking that because I turned 50 yeah. this year. Um, I was going through menopause yeah. at that time. Yeah. Through those two relationships. Interesting. Yeah. And so then I remember, and I, I, um, and it was interesting because it was such a time of um, people start were starting to transition gender-wise. Mm -hmm. And so at 50, I had lots of access through friends and then, you know, through doctors to testosterone, mm -hmm. which was the part of, for me, the part of hormones that I wanted. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I also, there was something called Esther Tester that was, a, that was both. And I love, I mean, it was just like a gigantic feeling. You know, mm -hmm. I remember being teaching a bard that summer before I went to San Diego and just feeling like towering and just full of good feeling and desire and, and great ideas. And But then it was also the moment when they released this, there was an idea that hormones or estrogen was going to give you cancer. Right. And so I went cold turkey off it and then would just toy around with tea off and on during both as relationships, mm -hmm. which was fun. Have you, you can be like, fuck off, Rachel, but like, have you ever been with someone who's going through menopause? Like a part, have you, has, see, like, I'm so curious about that. Like one of the things about dating younger people is you don't get the life stage. Is that because it's a nightmare? <laughs> Or is that because you're just the, not you interested? You don't get the lifestyle. Like, I mean, you don't, like, like, you the know. The younger person doesn't understand what you're going through. Yeah, I mean, my, my ex-husband is dating women in their 30s, mm -hmm. um, 
which is fine. Yeah. Um, you know, or some women in their 40s, fine, whatever. I don't care. But I also get it. Like, I don't think I aged out of that marriage. Um, you know, there's a lot of shame around that. Um, he's but not interested I, in what? I don't think he's interested in adult women. Oh, oh, oh. And I think there's a lot of shame in that. But uh, shame on his part? No. Or? Like, uh, I, yes, yes. I think shame in his part. Um, and like, there's a lot of, of, you know, criticism levied against people for. Uh, especially men, but not only. You've been the subject of this, of like, you know, people having opinions about how old or not old um, I think older your partners women are. make you think of your mother. Interesting. And I think I probably have that too. Uh-huh. So that's, you're kind of like, I don't want to, I don't want to date my mother. I feel it makes me feel like a child, an older Interesting. woman. Interesting. Even though everybody who's in bed with me is... In, to some extent in bed with an older woman you know right but I don't have to see it but does it make you feel like their mother well that's like the great avoid you know because I um, mask I define myself in a masculine way but without denying I have some feminine aspects to right. me but it's like I, I identify I don't identify I mean I really feel very uncomfortable when anybody refers to me as my dog's mother uh-huh. You know, or and also to people, you know, it's like I remember some poet on Twitter loved something I said or did and she goes, Will you be my mother? Huh. And I was like, get the fuck away. I mean, I, yeah. I she couldn't understand my rage because she just was totally a straight woman who just had no idea what she had done. Yeah. You know? But so it's just like so I think I think that, you know, and I think and, and Do you get to be the fun dad? To some extent. But, you know, but the thing is, but all, but the thing is, we can, we, so there's a fantasy of in, in every relationship of who you are. And, and, you know, I love, you know, like a woman named Amber Hollabar, when, when Butch and Femme was like a new thing to talk about in a new way, like in the 90s. And she said this interesting thing was, is, it's like about gender, which is that, that, um, how did she put it? What's important is who you think you are when you're having sex. Uh-huh. You know, and I think the other person is receptive to that performance. You know, but it's like it's it's the gender I think I am when I'm doing things or having things done to my body or whatever, you know. And so um I think that that's true in most relationships between women or you know transgender yeah. people or whatever but the mask slips too uh -huh. and i think because people can think whatever they want to think right and so i think when when somebody i'm in a relationship with starts to get irritated or fed up with me or oh, i think i start to become their mother and there's a lot of manipulating and i mean like i think that the 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 struggle in relationships between women is both people are trying to extract the mother from the other person. Both people. I mean, I really think women have a lack of being mothered. Yeah. Whereas men get mothered. Women don't get mothered, you know? And so women, when they're faced with another woman, they try and move her into that position. And that's the struggle. You know, nobody wants to admit that's what they're doing. But And I think there's, there's a way in which by being older, you're really much more prey to being, you know. So I think oh, she tricked me, you know. I like how the word mothered can mean 
receiving mothering from someone, but also to mother someone, like to other them, is to put them in the oh, role yeah. of mother. Yes, 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 yeah. Which is so cool and, and confusing. And I, you know, I think also, like, um, I mean, I've talked about this before, but I don't, I don't, I identify very strongly as mother as a mother, almost mm -hmm. as a gender. Right. But I don't identify with femme. Yeah. And so that's an interesting position. And then if I think about, like, who am I when I'm having sex? Oh, definitely not a woman. Oh. And definitely not a mother. Ew, right. gross. Right, right, right. That's so interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's really interesting to think about who you are when you, because I change sexes for sure while I'm having sex. Pretty fluid. Oh my God. Okay. Well, so, so, yeah. so going back to just for one second to the sobriety question, because mm -hmm. I think that I might have a very sort of like naive and idealized idea um, about sobriety that it, that, that it is in and of itself a kind of impermanence or a kind of, um, I, mean, I don't think we have the words for this in English so mm -hmm. much, um, but like a constant renewal of impermanence in this, or or, yeah, and, or and, and, and newness and rebirth, right? And I and born again, all those things are really there. We go to meetings to get recharged. So that's why I wonder. It's not so much about drinking, not drinking, as it is about being with a person who is trying so hard to stay the same or and and they're they who, who's trying so hard to stay the same the non sober person oh, oh right so so to either like. The, stay the same except when altered except when drinking or taking drugs or are doing you trying out so hard to stay the same in your relationship or in your no, life no i think i that sounds so horrible no i think it's it is horrible that's what when i think about what it was like to be 11 12 13 when i was um and i still do it i do it even now but it's like when I want something or somebody to like me I try to say the same I think they'll like me if I'm still who they thought yeah who they liked the last time and yeah. it's really it's just like it's such a um emptying out thing to do to yourself and such a such a negation of what a relationship is you know or an encounter is between people to try and perform sameness for them and I think, but I do think that part of the dominant, the struggle, the power struggle in a relationship is that one person is trying to make the other person stay the same so they can have all their flow. And I think the thing that's probably really hard in a relationship is that both people are flowing. Right. And you're becoming other people all the time. And, you know, it's sort of like, and you have to, it's even, you know, it's weird because I went, when I just, I just short, I did a short note of thinking about, you know, because you're asking me about dating and relationships and thinking about what I might like. And, and I think about um, the fact that I travel and go away and wouldn't necessarily want to live with somebody and da-da-da-da. 
you know, and I, but then I quickly had the thought that I often have, but I would want us to be loyal, mm. sexually loyal. Mm -hmm. And then I, and then my next question is, well, why is that? Why is it that I require that? Why is that so important to me that the person is not fucking somebody else? You know, and I think I have this idea that the communication would then get cut off because that's my experience, say, in relationships when somebody has an affair, suddenly you just, there's something missing. Mm -hmm. There's they're, they're talking to somebody else. Yeah. And you can see it in their body and you can feel it in sex and things, things are gone. Right. And nobody told you, you know, and you can feel it. You know, and so I feel like my sense of what a um, what an open relationship would be like is that. But I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I've ever. I've never. Not sure. I've ever had the temerity to have one. Really, I mean, I've had moments and months or periods of time where we're like, okay, let's be open. You know, but it, it just meant we were breaking up, basically, short or long. When yeah. I was running for president, my girlfriend was having an affair. Mm. And I knew it, and I didn't write about that. Uh -huh. I was being cheated on during well, my presidential campaign. Why not? Um, I guess I didn't want it to be true. I felt shamed by it. And then she kind of for a long time held me to this belief that it wasn't happening. Like she lied to me, like persistently, and made it be that I was being, you know, so it was just like a ball of, you know, but that was something that didn't come out. Okay, I, I feel like I'm now I'm going right back to where we were before, but but do you feel like somebody can be have their commitment to sobriety, but also have an affair? Like that's an, the, when you were talking People, about human beings. Human beings have affairs, right? And human beings get sober. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think I think yes, you know. And I've done it, you know. Yeah, um, more. I've more done it to other people. I've been the affair uh -huh. in somebody else's relationship in sobriety. So, I mean, but I will say it's sort of like they're, you know, they're giving me, Grove is giving me text, what do you call it, the copy for the next book, uh -huh. you know, and I really didn't like it. And um, the first thing they said was they, they had a quote from Paris Review which was Eileen Miles is the closest thing we have to a celebrity poet. Uh huh. I was like, there's no fucking way you're putting that in my book. But when we started this conversation, you said that I was famous and... An outsider. An outsider. And yeah. I, was like, I realized that is the way to rewrite that line. Yeah. Because it's sort of interesting. But the thing is, what's, what's weird... So, so here I am, I'm this poet, and I, you know, I came to New York in the 70s, and you know, I was doing whatever my own version of was of making myself up and I was full of desires to be known and celebrated and all these things. And, um, and I had a few very simple ideas. And one was that I would pretend to be myself. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that it seemed like, you know, Patti Smith and Bruce Springsteen were very cool at that moment. So I thought, I'm like a tough, um, alcoholic, working class girl from Boston. I can do that. Mm -hmm. You know, and it was true and and not true and you know because I really wasn't tough mm -hmm. you know but I felt like I as being working class you're always read as tough 
you know, however you speak is read as, you know, you're like of the earth and you're like in the street and you're real and all that. And I was like, you know, for a lot of reasons and all of which I don't even know. So it's just like I wasn't. So I was doing that. And also I had this sort of Warholian idea of like, let me see, like, you know, first person narrative. Like mm -hmm. I just thought, saw that in, um, in the media. I saw it in, um, you know, like new narrative not new narrative new they, they called it new journalism and it was like sensational nonfiction writing right and it was everything from joan didion to tom wolf and i was deeply influenced by that but i don't know and also i i read a book called the cult what was it called culture it was about self and culture and the the, the idea this guy had was was about people who were institutions of one. Hmm. And that he said Andy Warhol was one. Um, I don't know if he said Joseph Boys, but Joseph Boys was one. I don't know if he said Gertrude Stein, but Gertrude Stein was one. There was all these people who were sort of like something unto themselves. They were beyond right. their genre. And I saw that Alan was one, mm -hmm. and I decided to be that. Mm -hmm. And so even though I wasn't famous when I was young, my conceit instantly was Eileen Miles. Yeah. That I would use myself and I was being ironic. And part of it was about trauma because I was the kid who would go to my dad's grave and stand there trying to look tragic mm. when I couldn't feel anything. I felt nothing about my dad's death, you know, but I knew that it was sad and I knew it was a good story and I knew it would get attention. And I knew people would feel bad for me. But it, but in fact, they didn't and nobody did do anything. And it was me performing sorrow you know and so i just think when i came to new york it was people would solicit you know like people would be doing um you know i wasn't getting published you know i was trying to get published but i wasn't getting published you know and when and i would see a call for something and i would do i would do versions of um you know it was like i remember there was a poet's dictionary and i think i submitted um eight what was it 33 swan place hmm. the um home of Eileen Miles and I described my street and my neighborhood and you know and it was just like they were just so irritated who's this young little nobody who's acting like they're already famous and right. that was my conceit as a person as a coming into you know and so it's so funny you know and as and then you know it's sort of like but then there are things that I've done that actually I mean, like always, you know, like in the poetry group I was in at the beginning, like in the 70s, it was always cl already clear that I was kind of one of the best of the bunch. And I got attention and Alan Ginsberg paid attention to me and John, you know, and it was interesting. They would pay attention to me, but I was still female. Mm -hmm. So they would help men and they would help me a little bit, but they wouldn't get me a book. Mm -hmm. You know, what I mean? men got that, mm -hmm. you know, women didn't, you know, but it was like, but so I was, I was culty famous in my group. But it wasn't until I ran for president that I actually busted out of the... And then it was really strange because it was just this new problem, which was that I I was big and small at once. Mm -hmm. And it's continued to be this strange. And I think it is the thing that's really, for me, culturally really interesting. And I don't mean about me, but um, like Jack Pearson talked about it once in a panel that I... That in, in Skies, we had this really great panel about the sky and... Each person did their own take on what that meant, and it was really interesting. But Jack wound up talking about, what was his name? A British rock star named Johnny Johnny Ray, 
who was sort of huge in the 50s and 60s. And I think he um, became unfamous by being caught in a movie theater giving a blowjob. And it was like, ended his career. Hmm. But it was like, I think Jack used him to talk about the relationship between the little room and the big room. That Johnny Ray, that, that Johnny Ray was, at this point, little room, culty, like people. But there was a moment where he was the big room. And then he became unfamous by what he did in the little room. You know, mm. like it was like the little room became the big room. And these two, these two spheres are so interesting, you know, in terms of how we read ourselves or our culture and how things happen. You know, and 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 even even you know, like at, I went to Alice Katz's um, opening at the Guggenheim the other night, mm-hmm. and it was really a great event. But um, but it was, but I think probably what he's ninety five. I mean, part of what was being celebrated was that he had stayed in the big room, being productive his whole career. And I think we all look at like how does William Carlos Williams keep being William Carlos Williams, or whoever is whatever level of thing that they get to they stay there you know as opposed to like people who were known in the 70s and where are they now and all that kind of thing it's really interesting you know so i'm talking about a lot of things at once yeah for sure um but i but i mean i think as an artist i'm really interested not so much at staying famous but staying um you know really just throwing out the next thing, which never relates to, I mean, the culture, you know, like after Chelsea Girls and a few books, when I had that moment in 2016 where suddenly I was like a famous poet for being a poet, sort of, mm-hmm. it still wasn't entirely, it was more me than the work still. Right. But it's like, what what was clear that, what, what was clear that publishing really wanted then was a memoir from me about how I became Eileen Miles. When instead I was writing a dog book Right. And the wrong dog book. And I got no money. You know, I should have gotten a giant ass advance of my next book, but instead I got a little one uh-huh. because I wasn't doing the right thing. I was I returned to the little room. The writing room is always a little room. You know, it's connected to the big room, but you really it's none of my business what what my writing is gonna bring me. You know, and it's just been a interesting thing to learn time and again, is that you have no idea what people will love how people will react to stuff. Like, my The Importance of Being Iceland has a really good life. Yeah. That book sells. I had no idea. I thought that was such an oddball book. Whereas I've published other things where I thought, this is like a perfect book of poetry. Nothing. Got, you know, like very little response. I mean, Sorry Tree didn't get much attention. It was a very quiet book. You know, and I think that's a little gem of a book, you know. Um, so it's just like, it's not, again, I just think it's not my business who reads my work or what gets... It's, so we, what makes something a big room? Is it money? Is it how many people are in the big room? Like I, I, one of the things, so I have this amazing therapist now, thank God, saving my life like every, yeah. every fucking day. Yeah, yeah. Um, but she said to me when I first started to go see her, I'd had a bad therapist for a while and I was taking photographs of myself in the mirror of my therapist's bathroom every time. And hiding this from her um, because I every time I had therapy, I was like, I don't exist. And it's getting worse and worse and worse and oh. worse. And I had to, like, photograph myself. And so I, I, I confessed this to the new therapist. And um, she had been saying, our 
job together, our work together, is to get you to be the right size. Mm. Not bigger than you are and yeah. not smaller than you are. Right, 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 right. And so I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about like how I think this is really one of the real the the things that you do in your work that just feels incredible to me, which is to be both big and small at the same time and to be many selves uh-huh. in a way that I identify with, but always worried as a kid, mm-hmm. like, oh, this is a sign of mental illness. This right, is psychosis. Right. Yeah, this yeah, is, yeah. this is like some kind of like delusions of grandeur mixed yeah. with, you know, overriding shame. Like I'm too big. I'm too small. Yeah. I'm too many people. I'm no one. There's no way to be, you know, Walt Whitman, I contain multitudes. I was like, fuck you, Walt Whitman. Like, I just, I'm trying to be anything. Right. Um, but as soon as I'm anything, I'm too much. Okay. And so, part of that is being female. Yeah, for sure. You know, because it's inherently dirty. Yeah. You and know. I'm just, I'm, I'm always trying to be what the other person wants me to be. And I don't yeah. even know, fucking know what that is. Right. And, you know, and then if, if, if all I am is pleasing. Yeah. What? I'm nothing no matter what. And if I if somebody likes me, that's bad. If somebody doesn't like me, that's crushing. Okay, And that but then there's also like the room, the big room and the small room. Is Mm -hmm. it and 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 the and without having some kind of like binary or dichotomy of like big is good and small is bad. And yet, okay, if the writing room is always the small room. Is is publishing the is is publishing the hallway like is publishing yeah I think it is I think it's yeah. a transmitter of well obviously us to any culture but then right? ha- and then like what makes you be in the big room well it's just like I mean don't you think like I think the culture is a strange thing that pays attention to some things and not other things right the big book can put you in the big room right. the advance can put you in yeah. the big room i mean i have no idea i still have no idea what really happened in 2016 for me it's mm-hmm. just that all i could think of is is but though is is that like say i published chelsea girls in the 90s and then in 20 then you know 25 years later it gets republished by a mainstream publisher and then i you know and my selected poems was coming out with hopper collins too and it was just like who is this person? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, how could this kind of scrappy, you know, lower, uh, this, I, I think I was, I became referred to as the punk poet for a long time. Right. Punk, I was like, why am I the punk poet? But I was like, a way to say dyke in class without saying either. Yep. You know, and experimental. Like, yep. all of these just don't fit in the mainstream understanding of what a poet is. So, punk poet, you know, and, um, but it's like, how is this punk poet now being, published by this large publisher like right. what how could this be and and i think that almost that impossibility became a subject matter for things to write about you know and it just like the fact that you know and then i just happened to have all these kind of famous looking things hanging around like a portrait in my bathroom of robert Ma- of myself by robert maple uh-huh. you know and just like that that i happened to have been there all the time and knew all these people like who this little nobody knew all these people, you know, right? Because there's no comprehension of the, of the kind of um, the wiliness and the obscure path of nobody knows what a poet is, right? So of course you're a poet, knowing all these people and having a life and being all in all these places and having cultural memory, 
you know, but it's sort of like, but, but if the culture doesn't remember you, who are you? But it was like suddenly I was a witness. I wasn't writing just kids. I was actually writing. I mean, it's so weird. It's sort of like the culture acted like I was writing just kids. But when, in fact, I wrote an art book, which was Chelsea Girls. Right. You know? And when you, when whatever happened in 2016 happened, you had spent a lot of time performing and inhabiting and like uh, nurturing. Eileen Miles. And so there was a little, it was, it's, it's almost like I'm imagining you with like a lot of Eileen Miles memorabilia that, that it's like, oh, oh, someone's interested. Well, yeah. I happen to have all of this well, Yale, Eileen Miles Yale owns stuff. it all now. Right. Right. All right. I don't know. I don't know what we're talking about Big anymore. Big room, little room. Big room, little room. About? Right. Okay. Yeah. Is the point to get to the, do are we supposed no, to No, I don't no, I don't think so, but I think we're care? all wary of this I think we're all wary of this thing that it's like we're not sure we matter unless we're in the big room. Right. Or if you're in the big room, how can I stay here? Or I'm against the big room. Like my world of poets, it's like Bernadette Mayer. It was just like and that was so funny because in the in 1981 I had, you know, an affair with Bernadette Lewis, mm -hmm. you know, and I wrote about it. And you know, Bernadette is dying as we speak yeah it's taking a long time i keep carrying the bernadette mayor t-shirt around being ready to put it on the day she dies mm -hmm. and she's just not but it's like um that was our it was so funny our conversation between me and her and lewis was all like i remember i felt that i was anyone lewis felt that he would like to be someone <laughs> and bernadette felt she was no one Mm. And that was one of our, and it would erupt in all our poems. Yeah. At that time, I have a few poems that have no one and anyone, and but um, but but I know that they they the, they believed that I was going to become famous, but also at, Bernadette is adamant that that is not what she wants, and that she is very happy with the one hundred people who read her work. Right. And so it's like humble, humble, humble to a point where I feel like that's a lot of crap. Well, she'd like a, some money. Yeah. You know, she's pretty open about that, which I, I have no complaint about. Right. Like, I mean, I, I, when I went to, to record with her, you know, that was like one of the first things that she said. And then, you um, well, she's like, where's my fucking Guggenheim? You know, like where, you know, why don't, why haven't I gotten the money? Right. I just, I need the money for the house. I need the money for my health. I need the money, yeah. you know whatever um and alice also you oh, know yeah. alice is pissed and she won't apply for a guggenheim she was just i was like <laughs> alice you can have it you just have to fill out the fucking application right and she was like oh i don't think i you know well she, and and you know she's also so mad that like the publisher world can't keep up with her um, you know, um, publishes a book every year. Right. Yeah. But that it's like, it's not, she still has all these manuscripts that, right. you know, so, I mean, I think it's really interesting. I mean, I, I don't know either of them the way you do. Um, but those are, those are my people that I've modeled myself on or, or been in conversation yeah. or whatever. I mean, I, I even remember thinking, I mean, James Schuyler is one of the, my most of important course. poets. Great. Um, yeah. And I never got to meet him. Um, I read his work because Wayne Kostenbaum was my professor as an undergrad and loved Schuyler. And, you know, the first time I read Schuyler, I was just like, oh, I, oh, 
okay, that, yeah. now I it's a whole different I know, thing for I me. Know. Um, and I remember teaching Skylar um, to NYU students. Um, it was a graduate class, and I was taught. I was, uh, it was teaching a class about long poems, and so I was teaching Skylar's long poems and some of his short poems. And everybody was so pissed about Skylar, and they were like, you know, there was like all this like negative energy in the room and I was like what the hell's going on I, I think we read a few days or morning of the poem or mm -hmm. something so what was the anger about so this is I mean you're going to think this is so insane so they were like who is this rich man who lives at a hotel the Chelsea hotel who lives in a hotel and doesn't work and just enjoys this like rich white privilege and just like looks at the world and gets to to comment and i was like you wow wow like there's such a um it's so interesting to see what these is this recently mm, or yeah about 10 years ago yeah um, so this total misunderstanding first of all of who skylar was by now you could probably not even teach skylar because why? Just he's an old white guy, right? Yeah, and true. Just like, true. Really, really hard to at NYU teaching. Who was I teaching? George. Um, my God, what was his name? But my my yeah. students often think that you know C D Wright is an insider with all this academic privilege, and Alice Notley and Bernadette Mayer. These are like they're they've become in some weird ways, like insiders, even though. E their poetics, their poetry, their lives, mm -hmm. their, uh, it, it, it's a very strange thing to try to, I don't know if it was always this way, but I, I'm certainly having this experience. Well, of like, who, do, who do they accept? Who is like the appropriate, who is, who gets by? Uh, young queer writers of color who right. are, you know, um, you know, yeah. And many of them are fantastic. Right. Um, but I mean, I know but, it's sort of like, I know I can't, I, I have never been long listed for a book award. Right. Not once. Mm -hmm. And all those, I was going to say all those kids, all those young people who are on those love my work. I know they do. Yeah. But it's very interesting. It's like when they do pick an older white female seeming person, it will be like, um, you know, it's sort of a straight woman and more mainstream. Because I feel like I don't know what it was just like I fall into some gutter of like too too successful yeah too famous yep yeah you yeah know? well that's right that's it's right very weird so I think there's a very there's a really strange moment in terms of privilege and and I just you know obviously I think in relationship to race it's just like just give it it's like it's like the Thanksgiving manifesto so let's let's just say it we're just going to give every award completely to people of color for ten years and forget white people like right. I would almost prefer that yep. than these weird little in-between choices so we just keep watching Louise Glick get awards and otherwise it's all young people of trans people of color you right. know just like it's just like that's not that doesn't make sense either it feels it feels very reactive well none of it really makes sense and then on top of it all I feel like in the poetry world you know, and this is maybe talked about too much already, but like this question of like, what is the big room? What is the small room? 
you know, we're constantly in this scarcity economy. We're like fighting over nothing. Right. We have mixed, vexed feelings about do we want to be famous? Do we like? I remember when I sort of confessed to some of my hardcore poetry friends that I was writing a memoir. Everybody was like, "Ooh, you know." Oh, I know. Like, I know. Very bad. Luckily, it was so unsuccessful as a memoir that I got to stay in the poetry world. Oh, thank right. you so much. Right, right. Like, right. I've, I would love to just. Even when Wave published um, my book, The Pedestrians, it was supposed to be two books, and one of them was supposed to be prose. And I've, I, I, I'm like dying to be published as a prose writer. Right. But they're like, nope, you got to be in the poetry world. No, it's very weird. In the poetry world, if you do, I mean, because I do write prose as well, I think I'm regarded, and, and also that I've gotten a lot of attention, I'm not regarded as a poet mm-hmm. in a lot of circles. Like, I'm for people who don't read poetry. Right. You've and, crossed over. Right. But it's very weird because it's even, even, even in the Poetry Project newsletter, I don't get reviewed. Really? Uh uh-uh. uh. Because you're always going to be a poet. Because I'm a given. Like, somehow I'm a given, where, so there's nothing to kind of fight for. Somehow everybody likes Eileen, you know, and it's sort of like, so it's just like a new kind of, you know, and even like series like, um, what is it? The one it's at Artist Space now. The um, Segway series. I never get invited to read Segway. They don't. What do you want that you haven't gotten yet? If you're willing to admit it. Oh, I would like to. Obviously, I would like to get a nice big mainstream book award. Uh huh. And I would like to get a nice big lifetime achievement award. I mean, I think that. Why? Because I want the money. Yeah. I would like to. I would. You know. What if it was didn't? Do you want more money and like? Is it just about the money? Because some of the prize, some of the biggest prizes. Yeah, I sort of resent that. I mean, it's sort of weird to be seventy-two years old, to be. I regard myself as trans, but queer and lesbian too. Um, it's just like, can it be that I've not had a lifetime yet? Because uh, when the, you know what I mean, like I feel yeah, like yeah, there, yeah. it's not regard. I don't have, I don't have, not have any kids. Yeah. Doesn't how could that be a lifetime? Lifetime is a. It means a straight lifetime progeny and so I just think there's a weird you know it's like the outsider thing yeah you know and it's just you know but again I think so it's just like I would like also okay no I'm gonna just like I want a movie made by a really good director of Chelsea Girls yeah you know Amazon bought it they um, hired me as a screenwriter I wrote the screenplay I made some money yeah and then they just didn't make it they just dropped it you know and so I would really, I would really, that's probably my number one, actually. I would like that the most. I want a really good film made of Chelsea Girls by a really good director. That would be fun. Okay, what are you going to do with the money when you get it? Because you're going to get it. I don't know. See, it's hard. It's because, like, part of me thinks buy an apartment so I would be, be, be beyond instability in terms uh-huh. of this place because it's sort of like I'd, like, I'd like to live in more space in New York City. Yeah. So that's appealing. I probably would do that. I would okay. probably, you know, but it's sort of, even as I say that, I feel a pang, you know, because I love this little place. You know, yeah. it's like, it's like an extension of my body. Um, what else would I, yeah, I know. It's sort of like, I pretty much have what I want now. I have my house in Marfa. I love it. Um, I mean, you know, it's sort of like I have X amount of money. I have money in the bank, but it won't get me till the day I die unless I die soon. Mm-hmm. You know, so it just probably, it would probably feel better to have a bigger nest egg. Mm -hmm. Um, So I probably would buy an apartment in New York. I think that's what I would do. And I would buy a place in P-Town. Uh-huh. Yeah, I would buy a couple houses. I like, one of my favorite lines is, um, 
of my poetry, but it was lifted from something I read in the New York, New York Times. But it's, um, I long for a king's journey from place to private place. Oh, yeah. Because kings were always home. <laughs> so, so You're I guess the king. Was, You're the king. I'm sort of like, I'm a secret king. I was sort of like, I like the idea of, um, you know, I probably, yeah, I don't know. What do I want? It's just like I probably would be happy to teach someplace for a lot of money one semester a year. I would yeah. do that. Yeah. But I don't think I'm regarded as that person. You know, like I taught at NYU, they kind of fired me. I'm an adjunct there. No, it was so weird. I was paying so much money. The last time I taught there, they paid me $50,000 for a semester. And then they never asked me to teach again. I feel like I did something wrong. <sighs> They're very weird there. There's, I, I don't and then even, they, you know, they hired, you know. started, but um, bullshit. Right, right, right. These are the things. We're gonna that go won't. on strike. Do you know that we're gonna we're going on strike? But anyway. the adjuncts, yeah, cool, yeah, um, yeah. I've been I ha I've had a union grievance against them for two years, which I just lost. Anyway, um, okay. So when when Chelsea Girls gets made into a fantastic movie with a fantastic director, because I think this is gonna happen. I think it's gonna happen. I just yeah. the question really is, will I be alive? Okay, so you are going to be alive, and <laughs> I'm, you, I'm just saying that. Yeah. So then, like, same question. I think Lisa Cholodenko is the director. Oh, I think I ought to just give it to her. That's a good idea. Because she's been acting like she knows me lately, like she knows people I know, and they were like, you know, I, I'm like, people like to drop my name like they know me. Uh-huh. And I was like, so make the fucking movie, Lisa. Yeah, I like that idea. Yeah, yeah, she could do it. Okay, so we so, you would give me the film. So so just like I said, like so what will you do with the money? What will you do with I will that give, no I, I would also I'll give it away. Okay. I give away money all I mean who you, who, I know you I know you do a lot of saving of dogs who right. have been animals, wolves. Yeah. And I've I help you know, like I anybody I know who wants to borrow money, I yeah. just am happy to go into my savings account and loan the money and Okay. Um and I've given outright money for poets for a thousand bucks to a poet for their teeth and mm -hmm. you know, so I would just be like I would make a non profit because Alan did that and mm -hmm. I just would just create you know and that's what you know, like I've oh I don't know if I want this in the I've Why haven't the, you gotten a MacArthur? I think by, well, when I was young, they were giving them to older people. And now that I'm old, they give them to younger people. Oh, that's stupid. I mean, in liter outside of literature, I've noticed people my age get them. Yeah. But in literature, they keep giving them to young people. Right. So I know I would love a MacArthur. Okay. So, but what are you going to do with the experience <laughs> of the fabulously made Chelsea Girls? Oh, just, I think I love film. And so I, and I wrote it. I wrote it not to be a film, but as a film. Uh -huh. I mean, that was totally in my mindset that, that I didn't, because I didn't know how to write stories or to write a novel or yeah. prose, but I did know how to visualize something. And so I thought of them as little movies, you know, and each was a little movie from a different point in this character's life. But in, in relationship yeah. to the, what would you, what do you want? Yeah. In a way, I want exactly this. I mean, I would say the truest thing is that because I sort of I can do what I want and I already have everything I want. Uh -huh. Other than I would like my ankles to yeah, I would like to be able to run again. Yeah. I would like my ankles to heal. So wait, what's the this? The, you know, like living here now like this, uh -huh. you know, taking notes this morning for my novel and yeah. writing stuff and looking forward to the. Yeah. Yeah. It's all I mean, I just you know, the thing the one thing is the, the thing the thing that the truest thing always is. 
and I think we talked about this at some point. You were talking about you were talking about the Thanksgiving manifesto. Yeah. And what it is and what it, what it, that I heartily heartily believe in is the thing of throwing the gauntlet down, a big overly big thing of desire and throwing it down and in that moment it makes a splash and it creates space. Mm-hmm. And I want to keep creating that space and living in it and working in it. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of like I think space, a, yes. a momentarily feeling of great expansive space and freedom is always just momentary. You know, and you can get it by going into McDowell mm-hmm. or I can get it by going to Marfa or I can get it by walking up the stairs and thinking, my life is too cluttered. There's no time to write. And right. then sit down and just like write something. Right. And be in it, you know, and think, oh, okay, so it's here. It's here. It's always here. It's always here. And I, th- I think one of the things that I'm, like this light bulbs going off in my head, which is the problem I have with gratitude is when I feel like it's weaponized against me or that to mean not wanting anything else, but it doesn't mean that. Mm -hmm. And so when you said what I would want with the money, with this other stuff is this, it does that, that this includes wanting more. Right, right, right. And that's that kind of gratitude, which is both a real like appreciation and love and and for what is and what's here and what's now can also include like nobody's writing a a thousand page novel because they're just so blissed out on, you know, the moment as it is without any right restless desire or passion or you know what uh, yeah yeah wow okay yeah so i think we're there (laughs) (laughs) all right let's end with that we've arrived (laughs) we've arrived arrived. yeah okay yeah You've been listening to episode 107 of Commonplace with Eileen Miles. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. This episode was produced by me, Valentine Conady, Langa Chinyoka, and Christine LaRusso. Many thanks to Grove Atlantic, Wave Books, Or Books, Semiotics, and New Directions, and to all the publishers who keep Commonplace and its listeners in glorious reading and listening. Huge thanks to the patrons who support Commonplace financially and emotionally. You make Commonplace possible. Thank you to all of you who send messages of support and encouragement. And to you, listeners, thank you for listening.